0: Let's turn now, friends, as the Lord would help us to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And we'll turn to chapter 14. Genesis 14. And we shall read three verses Genesis 14, verses 18, 19, and 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him, that is, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he gave him tithes of all. It's always been um, rather puzzling to me how little attention was paid by Old Testament writers to two of the most crucial texts in the Old Testament regarding our salvation and our Savior and these texts are genesis three sixteen on the prophecy of the seed of the woman going to bruise the head of the serpent. And this text here, especially verse 18, the prophecy on Melchizedek. Now, these two texts take us to the heart of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, Genesis 3.16 is not mentioned again at all in the entire Old Testament Scriptures. This text is mentioned only once in the psalm you were just singing, Psalm 110. So in effect, this Melchizedek character appears to Abraham here and then, as it were, disappears for a thousand years and then he raises his head in the time of David where he wrote of him in that psalm and then he disappears again for another one thousand years until we read of him again in the epistle to the Hebrews now by anybody's standard my friends that's highly unusual to say the least now um, By the way, as I go on to this, um, at this stage of this man, uh, Abraham's life, he's known as Abram. But for convenience sake, I'll just refer to him as Abraham. The controversy over this man Melchizedek's identity has raged for thousands of years. And it shows no sign of abating. And some reliable commentators suggest to us that this was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Now, it is, of course, true that the second person of the Trinity did appear in the Old Testament on a number of occasions. These appearances are known in history as theophanies, a word which means appearance of. God, and there's a number of them, such as the one of the angels, at least, that appeared to Abraham at the door of his tent as it is put on the plains of Mamre, the voice that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, that was a theophany, the man that appeared to Joshua before he began the cleansing of Canaan. I think it's in Joshua chapter 5. I think it's called the commander of the Lord's army. That, we believe, was also a theophany. Meanwhile, this character is called, in verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem. This was an ancient name for the city of Jerusalem. Now, more significant still, it is quite interesting that Paul, in the readings we had in Hebrews, he didn't seem to believe that Melchizedek and Jesus were identical. He obviously considered him quite distinct from Christ. So, if he wasn't Christ, we do have to admit that there are certain definite parallels between the two men. And that's where this story becomes challenging for ourselves. How do we rationalize the verses we've read in the letter to the Hebrews with what we are told in these three verses in Genesis fourteen? Well, the answer to questions of that nature must always be, due priority to the New Testament and what the New Testament Says, So we have to shine the light of the New Testament onto these verses of Genesis 14. Paul wrote, Hebrews 5, 11, of whom, referring to Melchizedek, we have many things to say. Now, if I were to ask you this morning, before we began, what could you tell me about Melchizedek? Would you have many things to tell me? But Paul reckons we should have many things. He has many things to say about it. So there is obviously a considerable body of teaching in the story of Melchizedek. So let's look at it in a little detail this morning, as the Lord would help us. Let's look first of all at the context. The location where this meeting took place between Melchizedek and Abraham was Canaan. This, as most of you know, is the um, area, the geographic area, which God promised to Abraham when he called him out of his native land. We read in chapter 11, verse 31, that Abraham and his family went from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. Now, The problem here is that during this time, Canaan was under the dominion of the sons of Ham. Ham, as some of you know, was uh, Noah's wicked son, the two sons, Shem and Ham. Ham was the nasty one. And the Canaanites were the descendants of this man, Ham. And not only that, but this land we call Canaan was, at the time of Abraham, and uh, early on in the piece, anyway, it was divided into numerous kingdoms with kings over each one. And these kingdoms were constantly at war with each other. And there was evidently a kind of a civil war, among some of them at least, during this time, when Abraham's nephew, Lot, was taken away as a prisoner of war. So Abraham had to go and rescue him. And we find, towards the end of this chapter, in, in uh, verse 23, that for some obscure reason or other, the king of Sodom decided to reward uh, Abraham for rescuing his own nephew. I have never heard of that. A satisfactory explanation for that. I have no idea why the king of Sodom would want to do that. But Abraham would have none of it. Verse twenty-three: I will not take from a thread to a shulach it from you. What? Lest you say that I made Abraham rich. He wanted nothing to do with this pagan, heathen man. And that's how Abraham considered all these kingdoms and the kings. Heathen, hostile to his God. Yet, in the midst of all that hostility, all that darkness, all that ignorance, something miraculous also existed in Canaan. Centuries before the first part of the Bible was ever written, Centuries before God gave his laws to Moses at Mount Sinai, centuries before the worship of God was organized in any kind of way with sacrifices and altars, we have this. Verse Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. Where did that come from? Who ordained him as a priest? How did he practice the office of a priest? Where was his altar? What kind of animals was he sacrificing? Because God was very particular about animals, was he not? So we have a who, a how, a where, and a what, which we haven't got any ready answers for. However, we do have evidence that this man, Melchizedek's religion, was real, vital, and meaningful. And that, my friends, is something religion must be in your life and in mine. Real, vital, meaningful. God deliver us from vacuous religious practices. Listen to the words of another believer of this vintage, a man who lived, or at least the historians and commentators assure us, he lived at the same time as Abraham. And I believe you heard a sermon on this man last Sabbath morning. Indeed, you heard a sermon on very significant words. Job chapter 19. I know my Redeemer. Liveth. How did he know? How could Job possibly have known that? He could only have known through the preaching of this priest, Melchizedek. In fact, when you read through the book of Job, and I think your preacher last Sabbath morning made this point, when you read through this book of Job, it's quite astonishing, the understanding and the grasp that Job had of the character of God. In fact, I've always found it challenging. Here I am with a completed Bible, and here you are with your completed Bible, with years of time behind us, of, of men expounding the word of God to us. Commentaries on every side. And I don't think I know a fraction of the character of God in comparison to Job. He had a high view of God, didn't he? So Melchizedek must have been his preacher, as well as his priest, as well as his king. Hence, Abraham recognized this man deserves high honor. Look at what he gave him in the end of verse 20. He gave him tithes of all. I'll come back to that in a moment. This is an incredible testimony. In the midst of all this heath and darkness, this is an incredible testimony. And it reminds us, my friends, God is no man's debtor. He has his own people in every kind of situation and situation and circumstance imaginable. And we must never write any location off. We must never write any person off, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how prevailing the darkness may be. We must never write them off because we are dealing, my friends, with the God of the impossible. The God who is able to shine his light into the darkest darkness, as he did here in hostile heathen Canaan. So let's be open to that reality when we see the prevailing circumstance of our own day. Let me move on to look at Melchizedek's gift to Abraham. Verse 18. He brought forth bread and wine. Now in most religions, priests usually offer gifts to their gods. That's what they they like to do. That's the essence of their office. But here, Melchizedek marks Abraham's victory in rescuing Lot by offering him the gifts of bread and wine. And I suppose we would have to conclude, from a worldly point of view at least, It was a pretty pathetic reward in comparison to no doubt what the king of Sodom was offering Abraham. But this is what he offered him, bread and wine. Now, it's hard to know, at least I find this hard, how far should we take this in terms of what it implies? We cannot ignore that bread and wine was hugely significant on the Passover table. We cannot ignore that the bread and wine was hugely significant in the estimation of Jesus Christ when he made it the very essence of the Lord's Supper. We can't ignore that. But I still find it hard to argue that it had definite sacramental value here. I'm not sure about that. On the other hand, there are these parallels with gospel issues that we cannot possibly ignore. Here's a priest who is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest high priest that ever lived. And a thousand years after this, David the psalmist clearly saw the connection between these two men, Melchizedek and Christ. Thou art a priest forever, he wrote, after the order of Melchizedek. Two thousand years after this, Paul made the same link. He saw the same connection. Referring to Melchizedek, we read this in Hebrews 7, verse 3. He was made like unto the Son of God. And then he added these enigmatic and mystical words. Without father, without mother. With a descent, having neither beginning of days, nor end of life. These terms can't possibly refer to Melchizedek as a man. He was born of a woman. He died in due time. How do I know that? Because my Bible says it is appointed unto every man wants to die. So these terms must refer to his office rather than to himself, to his office as this high priest of God. And it refers to his office because it was a singularly unique office in the Old Testament. There was no such office before this. There was no such office after this. God's priests, and we read this in Hebrews chapter 7, God's priests in the Old Testament were of the Levitical tribe. In fact, his high priests had to be direct descendants of Aaron. Even descendants of Moses couldn't be a high priest. It had to be a descendant of Aaron. But these didn't exist in Melchizedek's day. So God evidently used him to prefigure the sheer uniqueness of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hence the testimony of David in Psalm 110, though what a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And when that is tied into Hebrews 7, we have this encouraging news. The Son of God who abideth a priest continually. Do we really grasp hold of what that means for ourselves as we gather here on a Sabbath morning in the house of God, around the word of God, worshiping the living God? He is interceding for us. We have a high priest, my friends, right now at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Taking your petitions, taking your worship, taking your praise, and presenting it all to the holy eye of God in an acceptable manner. And if he wasn't our high priest, if he wasn't interceding for us, our worship would be in vain. So, however, we should understand the bread and wine here, we are confident that Melchizedek and Jesus shared five things. One, they were not of the Levitical tribe. Two, they were not descendants of Aaron. Three, they were both superior to Abraham. Four, they were both priests and kings. Something that was disallowed after this In Old Testament times, a priest couldn't be a king. A king couldn't be a priest. And the only king who tried to be a priest, God judged him. He made him a leper for the rest of his life. His name was Uzziah. And fifthly, both men had a mysterious beginning and a mysterious end to their lives on this earth. And if you don't think that the beginning of Christ's life, was mysterious and the end of Christ's life was mysterious there's something wrong with your thinking but such was life in the era of types, shadows and symbols shouldn't we be thankful my friends shouldn't we be thankful for the simplicity of the gospel we have no need for religious pomp and ceremony We have no need for right and ritual. If we want to obtain eternal salvation, if we want to have peace with God, if we want to have hope, pardon, and forgiveness, all we have to do is call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember his testimony. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. I am a sinner. I need him. What do I do? I call upon him. Are you any different from me? How are you different? Why are you different? And if you're the same as me, this is what you must do. Why, my friend, should you hesitate? Why should you hesitate when the gift that the Lord Jesus Christ has to offer you is infinitely greater than the bread and wine Melchizedek brought to Abraham? Let me look thirdly at Melchizedek and Christ's priesthood. Now, there's no detail for us on the relationship of these two men. Have they met prior to this occasion? The Bible doesn't say, but I firmly believe that they must have. It is highly unlikely that a believer of Abraham's caliber would have been unaware of this unique priest. Highly unlikely. Now, for assumption that Melchizedek was the principal preacher, teacher, and priest of Job's day, Surely Abraham must have known that. Surely he must have known that. Surely Abraham must have been a part of that fellowship. There's definitely a ready recognition by Abraham here, priest, he said, of oh, the most high God. Without hesitation and without request, he immediately hands over a tithe of his spoils, to Melchizedek, verse 20. He gave him tithes of all. And the New Testament elaborates on this for us in our readings, Hebrews 7, verse 4, the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils, tenth of the spoils. This is, the, by the way, the spoils of war. This is what he what he gained and gleaned when he was rescuing his nephew, Lot. Now, let me assure you, my friends, this wasn't just loose was change in his pocket. This would have been a, 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 a massive reward, a tenth, a tenth. He handed it over. It's hardly what one does for someone you've just met. Of course he must have known. Of course he must have worshipped with them. Of course they must all have been of the same fellowship. Melchizedek. Abraham, Job, and who knows so many others. There's something else we should note from New Testament about this connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. When Paul decided to take this theme up in the letter to the Hebrews, six times he quoted from Psalm 110. Six times. The what a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Why six times? Wouldn't twice have been enough? When something is repeated that often in the Bible, <clears throat> especially in the Old Testament, it's usually for emphasis. Paul is making a point here. So Paul was referring back a thousand years to David's day. David was referring back a thousand years to the days of uh, Moses when he and before that, before when he wrote this is the days of Abraham, rather. Now, here's the mystery. In these three verses we've read, you can look at them again. What is it in those three verses that warrants this kind of emphasis? In fact, when you look at these three verses, there's very little information in them, really. Would David have based his astounding theological claim about the priesthood of Christ on what's written in those three verses? On the mere fact that Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, or that Abraham received bread and wine from Melchizedek? Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, again, 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 and again. And even more mysterious still, what was the connection between these two men, apart from the typology? What else can we learn from here? You know, my friends, there are parts of the Bible that require careful thought and prayerful study if we want to really understand what God has to say to us. None more so, of course, than whatever teaching there is on Jesus as the high priest of his people. Moses covered the Melchizedek story in three verses, 18, 9, and 20. When Paul reflected on those three verses, He included information in three chapters in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. Here's the strangest thing of all. The best insight we have into Melchizedek as a high priest and type of Christ comes from Christ himself. From Christ himself. It occurred when Jesus was being confronted by stubborn Jews who were fighting tooth and nail against his messianic limbs. And they challenged him. This is in John chapter 8, verse 53. Art thou greater than our father Abraham? They asked him. His reply is fascinating. And insightful. Your father Abraham, he said, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Have you ever wondered what Jesus meant by that? Commentators usually refer Abraham's joy in the answer of Jesus to how he understood the messianic promises of the Old Testament. And certainly, by the eye of faith, Abraham did see much within those promises. He saw much uh, behind, as it were, the altar and the sacrifice and the ceremony and all of that. All the believers from the Garden of Eden, true believers, saw far more than the physical aspect of their religion in that regard. Having said that, Jesus used very expressive language to describe to us how Abraham felt. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Those who are more expert in the Hebrew language than myself, they assure us that this is a very strong, emphatic phrase, that Abraham rejoiced and was glad. They say that a more accurate translation would be "exceeding joyful. Some commentators go as far as saying it really means he jumped for joy. Here's the question. What made him jump for joy? Would a mere sacrifice? ritual, or altar, cause that kind of joy in Abraham's heart? What fills your own heart, those of you who are believers here this morning, what fills your own heart with joy as a believer? Is it the mere existence of a Gethsemane, or a Calvary, or a cross? Surely not. Is it not the person who featured so very much in the story of Gethsemane, in the story of Calvary, in the story of the cross? Is it not the person that fills your heart with joy? So, is it not also true that there was far more than sacrifice and altar and ritual behind Abraham's joy? And I was suggesting. It was this, that Jesus referring to this encounter between Abraham and Melchizedek. That's what made him jump for joy. He saw in this mystical priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how David describes the office of priest which God created for Melchizedek. A priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What was the order of Melchizedek? The phrase suggests other priests subsequent to Melchizedek. Isn't that how that phrase is used when they call the order of so-and-so, the order of so-and-so? You're suggesting, you're implying that there are subsequent characters coming from this order. But there's not a single word in Scripture of any other priest That would match Melchizedek until Jesus Christ was born. And that's the significance of the phrase. There were no other priests of that order. It was singularly unique. It was retained by God for only two men. Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. So here Abraham saw three things that filled his heart with joy. First, that Melchizedek was both priest and king. Not merely because that was, itself was unique. But you see, as priest and king, Melchizedek, Abraham saw in Melchizedek a man who was taking care of the vertical and the horizontal in the lives of God's people the spiritual and the social needs of believers. The second thing he saw in the Melchizedek bestowed gifts upon him, gifts that were pregnant with meaning, bread and wine. Thirdly, that Melchizedek declared a twofold blessing in his ears. Verse 19, blessed be Abraham. Verse 20, blessed be the Most High God. Now, looking at all of that in the light of the gospel, there are distinct, undeniable parallels with the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. There had to be gospel content here, my friends, to fill Abraham's heart with joy. And to make Paul devote, devote such detail, the characteristics of Melchizedek in the readings in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. So notice these three gospel components as I bring this sermon to a conclusion. First of all, Melchizedek as priest and king, in the eyes of, of Abraham, clearly prefiguring Jesus Christ in these two roles of our salvation. He is taking care of the vertical. He's taking care of the horizontal. A priest and a king in the one man. And God only ever allowed that in Melchizedek and in Christ. To take care of our spiritual needs and to take care of our social and domestic needs. Second gospel component here. Melchizedek bestowed gifts on Abraham that matches the gifts of Jesus Christ to believers. The typical bread and wine that he sets before you every communion. We were singing earlier on in Psalm 68. Of Jesus Christ bearing gifts for each one of his people. Thou hast received gifts for men. Now there are many gifts. But with regard to Melchizedek. Is it not from a hand of Christ. That you believer receive that bread and wine at a communion and not from a hand of an elder. And thirdly, Melchizedek's twofold blessing is echoed in the twofold blessing every born again Christian receives from the Lord Jesus Christ. God bestows upon us, my friends, the blessings of forgiveness and eternal life. The moment you're born again, you are the recipient of these two gifts, forgiveness and eternal life, through our kingly priest. So let me close with three questions for you to answer. Is the Lord Jesus Christ priest over your life? King over your life, Savior in your life. Is he? Have you yet received from his hand the bread and wine of holy communion? Have you sat at that table with the family of God in sweet gospel fellowship? Or are you sitting away from the table when he dispenses those special gifts to his children? And can you claim, as you sit here this morning, the twofold blessing of salvation and eternal life from the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ? Remember, my friends, your answer to these questions could determine your eternal destiny. We thank thee, gracious God, for thy blessed word, for the challenges in that word, for the teaching of that word, for the edification of that word. And grant that we would be fed by the finest of the wheat this morning through the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And we thank thee for the intercession ongoing at thy right hand by your glorious high priest, infinitely greater than Melchizedek could ever have been. Continue with us into what remains of the day for his name's sake. Amen.